I'm not willing to say a lot of married couples are miserable, but I am willing to say that a lot of married couples do not talk to each other at all. We cringe watch, then getting it popping. We cringe watch, then getting it popping. We cringe watch, then getting it popping. We cringe watch it, then getting it popping. Welcome to Cringe Watchers, a podcast where we invite our expert friends to binge watch TV and talk about sex. This episode, we talked to Heather Heverleski and asked, why does anyone get married? Lori, this week, are you binging or are you cringing? I am cringing this week, Layla. And what I am cringing is content creators taking part in feminist baiting for clicks, meaning they do something outrageous that they know is going to get all the feminists talking at their throats and most importantly, sharing their content. And the main creator that inspired me to have this cringe this week is a show called the Fresh and Fit Podcast. And this is uh, a show that's hosted by two men who denigrate women constantly in their shows, just like many pickup artists, members of the incel community, and general misogynists. They claim to help men navigate the dating world, but in reality, they have the outlook of a hateful middle schooler and they're getting rich off of faux outrage cycles at the expense of women and especially black women. So they have publicly stated that they prefer not to date black women. They've had verbal altercations with a rapper named Asian Doll, and most recently they went viral for having their asses kind of handed to them on their own show by fitness creator Brittany Renner. Overall, I would say don't listen to their show, don't engage in this feminist baiting. Instead, read the article, My Brush with the Black Manosphere, about quote-unquote red-pilled black men by an awesome writer named Nicole Young, and let's all stop sharing ignorant and problematic perspectives, even if it's to quote-unquote answer or um, respond to what they're saying or correct the record. Oof. Yes, no more feminist baiting. Yes. Um, How about you, Layla? Are you cringing or binging this week? I am uh, binging to escape all kinds of bullshit, like the stuff that you just described. But I have been really happily immersed in the show Station Eleven. And I know that I'm not alone. I think you've been watching it. Many of our friends are watching it. It is a really lovely show in a style and a genre I don't normally uh, gravitate towards. It's sort of sci-fi. It's post-apocalyptic. There's a big pandemic in it. It's all based on a novel by the writer Emily St. John Mandel. but I will, I don't want to give away too much. It is a series on HBO Max. It stars Mackenzie Davis, uh, who I, is an actor I really like, and it plays with time and space and tone and is just a really beautifully done series that has a very distinct style that I think makes it stand out from all the other stuff that I'm kind of flipping through and binging. And just has a very strong message, I think, about why we're all here, existential questions, and a very pro-art message. There's a lot of Shakespeare and echoing themes of the importance of art in life that that I really love. That makes it all sound much less bingeable than it is. It's very both highbrow and bingeable, so I highly recommend. Oh, love that. And we love a show with lots of hours, don't we? Yes. <laughs> and I also want to shout out um, friend of the show, Cord Jefferson, who I believe is the writer on that show. So great pick. I also am enjoying it. 
And that is actually a perfect segue because um, speaking of art imitating life, today we spoke with Heather Haverleski, who I have been a huge fan of. Um, she writes the advice column Ask Polly, which was formerly with New York Magazine, now on Substack, and she has a book coming out called Foreverland on the divine tedium of marriage. It's published by HarperCollins, and it's creating a lot of buzz, at least in my circles, um, because she has been, you know, she was one of those kind of early internet writers, and she has developed a pretty uh, large following online and became known for her kind of quirky feminist existentialist advice that often would cut against the grain and was very validating for a lot of especially women writing to her experiencing you know all different kinds of problems in their life so she has stayed true to her voice and her brand with her newest book and has been really mining her own marriage for content. She's also great on Twitter. And one of the things that inspired us to reach out is that she recently published an excerpt of her book um, in the New York Times Magazine, which was called Marriage Requires Amnesia. And the subline was, do I hate my husband? Oh, for sure. Yes, definitely. And if you know anything about the internet, anything about Twitter in particular, an unflattering portrayal of marriage by a feminist woman is going to cause a lot of discussion and attention. And I think it's safe to say she was the main character on Twitter for a while. Folks either loved or hated this essay. Um, she got a lot of head nods and appreciation for depicting the nuances and, and sometimes the difficulties of marriage. But then she also got a lot of pushback from you know, Twitter trolls who feel like if you're a good person, you will simply love your spouse and be benevolent towards them. And does your husband know that you've been writing about him for the times? So it was a thing. And I'm really grateful that we got to talk to her, not only about her writing and television, but also just about how she's dealing with all of this backlash from her article. Yes. And I think uh, like any feminist, uh, she had some really great points about how you can love and hate the same person. We really needed to find the perfect jumping off point to frame our conversation with Heather. And so we looked and found a, a even more unflattering portrayal of marriage, which is the show Kevin Can F Himself. It's a very, it's a very big swing on the concept of marriage and also on the concept of the sitcom wife. If you're unfamiliar with the show, it stars Annie Murphy of Schitt's Creek fame playing a wife named Allison in Worcester, Massachusetts, married to a man named Kevin from the beginning there is nothing subtle about this show kevin is a, a dick and a slob and you can't quite understand why she's married to him allison is a smiling uh, uh sort of demurring wife and the interesting construct of this show which was created by valerie armstrong is that whenever kevin and allison are in the same room it takes a multi-cam laugh track classical sitcom format but anytime that the character of Allison is on her own or the or the husband leaves, it suddenly gets to a grim, single cam, darkly lit uh, drama style of show in the style of, of, you know, West Wing or Ozark, something very serious. So this flip-flopping of tones is supposed to show us, I think, the internal monologue of the, of the sitcom wife who is actually deeply unhappy and might hate her husband. And the overarching plot of the show has to do with whether or not she wants to kill her husband. So we thought this was a fun artistic parallel to Heather's work and to which we can talk about before we get into the episode itself, you know, just to frame this more broadly than one uh, book of essays and, and one sitcom, 
marriage as a concept is is on the decline, especially in this country, in the U.S., according to the Pew Research Center, between uh, 1990 and 2019, the percentage of adults from age 25 to 54 who were neither married nor living with a partner rose. So now there are 38% of, of people who aren't married or who aren't living with a partner, which that's almost four in 10 adults in the US, which is a, a big spike since our grandparents era and even our parents era. I know, Lori, you and I have talked about this a lot. I only recently got married. Uh, I got engaged on my 40th birthday. And it's not something I really thought about until my partner of many years and I kind of decided that we weren't going to have kids. And suddenly, marriage became a little more important to us, in part to frame our relationship for other people as more serious. And I've, that's something I, I would only say that succinctly after having thought about it for a while. But uh, definitely talking to Heather, watching Kevin and F, Ken F himself and talking to you has really made me sit back and think about what do I think about marriage? Do I believe about do I believe in marriage? And like, is there a future for marriage in this world? Absolutely. And you said it, like we're in New York, and I think some of those numbers are even higher. You know, for example, I attended your gorgeous wedding with my partner several years who I'm not married to, and that was totally normal and fine. Um, but this stuff goes deep, and I have to say, I really enjoyed talking about it with you and Heather. We had a great, long ranging conversation. She is delightful, and I hope all our cringe watchers enjoy. Welcome to Cringe Watchers, Heather. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm I'm very excited to be here. Lori and I have both read your book and we've been texting each other about it uh, over the past week and are also following your social media fo- uh, reactions to the book. So very excited to get your perspective. Oh, excellent. Well, I'm, I'm happy to talk about all of it. It's been very interesting. <laughs> Very interesting. But we're also here to talk about uh, Kevin can fuck himself. Obviously, yes. I can say fuck on this uh, on this year podcast. Is that right? That's basically the whole point of our podcast okay. is for you to say fuck on it. So my question to you, Heather, is like the conceit of this show, this curse word written show, Kevin can fuck himself. It's like a very ambitious show. My question to you is like, generally, do you feel like this show is working and do they pull off this conceit of like this dual uh, life that, you know, this woman is leading within the context of her marriage? Well, I mean, I'm going to say that I love the gimmick itself. It's incredibly jarring to watch a sitcom followed by a very dark drama Whenever the camera changes from the sitcom to the darkness, it's uh, it's so jarring and so upsetting. You know, you're kind of like in this, it's almost like waking up to a bad dream because you're in this sort of terrible but familiar enforced cheer universe where everything is supposed to be funny even when it's depressing. And then suddenly you're in this dark, gloomy place where everything is depressing. depressing. I mean, I I love the gimmick of the show, actually. I feel like when I was about 21, I wanted to make a movie that was five different genres and each genre would unexpectedly take a swerve and change into the next genre. So you'd be like in a rom-com and then someone would smash a glass and suddenly it would be like fisticuffs and you're, you know, in a... um, Uh, like a kung fu movie and then and then it becomes i don't know i can't remember what the different things were uh a superhero movie so that so i feel like this is like an interesting experiment the problem is is that 
it's too dark. I mean, I would, it's strange that I would ever have that opinion of anything. I love dark things, but, um, it was hard to believe that she would, first of all, that she would be married to this guy. Right. I mean, (laughs) did you find that hard to, to buy that because he's so unlikable and she's pretty all right. You know, like why, what is she doing with him? She's all right, but she also is, is so meek in the beginning uh, and, and just kind of, uh, plummeting ahead it's interesting i mean i think part of the mismatch is a takedown of of sitcoms and and a spoofing of how the fat obnoxious funny guy always has the super hot thin wife uh by conventional standards who is sort of in the background to laugh at his jokes and shake off his his antics but i think you're right the jarring part is that we're not able to suspend our disbelief it's, you know, you can kind of tolerate a sitcom and a laugh track if it's going consistently for the 30 minutes or the 25 minutes. But if you keep breaking it up and keep bringing us back to reality, then you're reminded of these things. Like, what are these two doing together? Or uh, how could how could this person like this guy possibly function in life? Uh, you would he would be fired and canceled and uh, kicked out of the house. Yeah, it becomes increasingly intolerable and odd that she refuses to stand up for herself with him and then everyone else in her life except for i can't remember the name of the character her her ex-boyfriend is nice raymond lee played by sam park yeah Um, i mean he's also just like you're you're watching the show and you're like here's this beautiful flower growing in the corner of this dreary dreary place um and i like the scenes with the two of them i did like the scene i did have you two watched more than one episode have you watched like i've only watched about two and a half I watched the season. Oh, you did? Oh, wow. I've, I've only watched the pilot for this show. And then I thought, well, <laughs> I've had enough. <laughs> but he, you know, the, the ex-boyfriend shows up and, and his very um, boutique Worcester diner uh, was, was was very charming. I, I definitely think if I were dropped into that world, that's the place where I would gravitate. <laughs> Every time she passes that place, I'm like, go in there. Talk to him. <laughs> There's no one else in town to talk to. Now you both have me thinking that maybe my opinion is based on having watched more episodes. But for me, it, the, the premise of them being together was not sort of unbelievable. But what was very unbelievable was how f- she dealt with her hatred for him. Because I actually feel like I know many people in real life who have some amount of contempt for their spouses. And, you know, Heather, you wrote about this and obviously it struck a nerve, so we'll get to that. But um, none of them take it as far as she ends up taking it. And and really the second half of this season goes very far into like her criminal murderous thinking. And so my question is kind of actually what makes her different at all from any other person who is just very, very annoyed by their spouse. And at what point, like, does her husband do something in the context of this show that makes him like deserve her murderous rage more so than like the normal people in my life? And that's kind of the line that I was struggling with as the show like leaned more into like her breaking bad moment. She's starting to plot his murder uh, in the second episode. Yeah. And it's sort of like, um, I mean, he's annoying. You could just <laughs> break up with him. <laughs> you could yeah. just divorce him. Um, and I mean, I also think that there's a there's a distinction between even 
annoyance or feeling anger at someone or feeling hatred towards someone occasionally when you're just carried away um, with rage um, and contempt. Contempt sort of implies kind of roiling resentment that never gets addressed. And, and it's, it's used as a term in, um, I think, uh, Gottman, who is uh, like a, probably the best known marriage expert in the country who talks about how when you can see contempt in a relationship, the marriage is in trouble. For me, I had one relationship that was really characterized by contempt. It was like we couldn't, we went to couples counseling and we couldn't talk in couples counseling without becoming furious, <laughs> you know, like if we had a chance to let out what we were really feeling, it's like we were constantly trying to control how pissed off we were at each other at all times about everything. Um, and that's the kind of thing where if you never have an, a way to express it in the relationship, it bubbles over in crazy, strange ways. You can kind of see it with certain couples I don't know. I kind of feel like there's this guiding idea that so many marriages are shitty right now. Like it's sort of like a, a trope to talk about what's wrong with straights. You know, why are they so unhappy? And I feel like I, I think it's one thing to talk about domestic violence, which is obviously a, a massive and terrible problem. But it's another thing to kind of cast dispersions on all the all of the marriages you casually observe and assume that they're unhappy. I feel like there's a lot of that in the culture at the moment. Um, it feels merciless to me kind of to assume that people are who are trying earnestly to kind of connect and get along and maybe struggling with a little, it seems strange to, I mean, I think that sometimes people who aren't married look at married couples who are just bickering in a very normal married couple way. And they don't know the difference between like, Oh yeah, it's just the sound that you make after 15 years versus like these two people hate each other. They need to quit. You know, they got to both call lawyers immediately. But I do think that you can see contempt, right? Like you can kind of, there's like the, oh, it's not funny. You know, if it's funny, that's not contempt. Contempt is we'll talk about it later. You know, <laughs> like, right. I actually think that the couples I'm most worried about is are the ones who are sort of passive aggressively correcting each other in public. And it's it's uh, like people bickering. I just think, oh, we're close enough that we can do that in front of our friends and they can do that in front of us. But when I see someone saying like, honey, you know, that that last piece is for the kids. Maybe don't take it off the platter. You know, the little little things where I see that sort of henpecking or I've, I've seen parents, mothers uh, imply that the fathers are putting their kids in danger. But but clearly it's built around a lot more. But doing that in, in, in at a party. Maybe I'm just very prude and, and try to keep all of that bottled up and inside my home. But uh, when I when I see that kind of passive aggressive, like it's you know other people can hear you, so you're dressing it up in kind of Stepford politeness, but you're actually publicly critiquing your spouse. And I've seen men do it to women as well. One of the terrible, ter truly terrible built-in things about having kids is you have this um, bomb going off that you both have to diffuse at certain times, right. and it's like you're trying to diffuse a bomb quietly while other people witness you sometimes. And there's nothing more. I mean, if you have any built-in shame from your past or, I mean, and who doesn't, or you just, your shame is kicked up easily. It's very difficult not to really shut down in situations like that. Like, oh, everyone thinks I'm a terrible parent. You know, there's a, there are these, there are these years when the kids are young, where you just everywhere you go, 
you have a potential of being outed as a as an awful hideous person well we we just wanted to take advantage of the fact that you are an advice columnist and say have you ever gotten a letter from someone like annie or someone who wants to actually kill their husband or uh, from someone at a breaking point what is the marriage advice that you've seen and also have have you seen any evolution in that over time i know right now marriages including yours as i've just read are under pressure in lockdown (laughs) You know, I I don't give a ton of marriage advice or uh, parenting advice. I used to not feel um, qualified at all to give parenting advice. And now that my kids are teenagers, I probably feel the least qualified, but I'm also willing to do it. I think the, the trap with marriage advice, at least that's kind of performed for an audience at some level, right? Because you have your, with my column, it's you're trying to give the best advice you can, but you also occasionally have to think about how, if it is serving any purpose for anyone else besides the person who is the advice is directed to. And with marriage advice, I remember one letter I got, I don't answer that many marriage letters, but I got this one letter that was kind of a little bit like uh, Kevin can fuck himself. I'd say like this woman was, was saying, she didn't have kids and she'd been married for something like 20 years. And she was just like, you know, I tried to talk to him about what I need and he doesn't listen. It, you know, it was sort of not really put that way. It was sort of like, I haven't been getting what I need for 20 years. So you had a little bit of like, have you really tried to talk to him at all? Um, but she also did describe the ways that he shuts down talking, the ways that he uh, doesn't like the same things that she likes. And you know, there was this litany of like, I can't stand the guy in the letter. And then it's like, what should I do? And I feel like it's hard, especially if someone says they have kids, you just kind of feel like you want to say, one part of you wants to say, get out the door. Like don't, you, you, life is too short for this. Uh, but also having been in relationships that turned around for me the second we started talking honestly about what was going on, it's impossible not to say first, it doesn't sound like you've had a conversation about this in like a decade, you know, and maybe that's the first step. I'm not willing to say a lot of married couples are, are miserable, but I am willing to say that a lot of married couples do not talk to each other at all. Yeah. About, about anything. <laughs> I mean, you write about this, I think, so well in, in your column, but really also in your book, in your forthcoming book. And you kind of describe this own personal moment, which I identified with really well, where I'm going to totally bungle this, but there you essentially saw two futures, like one where you kind of could get through to your now husband about like your needs. And um, I'm just going to reference something that will make no sense to someone who hasn't read the book, but your liver being dangled over a boiling pot of water and <laughs> one where your husband doesn't understand that. And like, I think that really resonated. And you know, essentially what we've been talking about together is just this idea of love and hate as like two sides of the same coin. There are shows that did what this show is trying to do well. Six Feet Under, I don't know if you got, have you watched Six Feet Under at all? Oh yes, all of it. I'll talk about it in a general way. People have relationships that aren't working. They aren't working to the extent that, you know, almost every relationship, let's take um, David and Keith, right? Okay. So David falls in love with this cop named Keith and they have the most amazing relationship. They get along so well, but there are times when things are not working at all. And there are other examples of relationships where people resent each other and they're contemptuous and they can barely communicate. But what you see is them trying 
to communicate over and over again. And when you see people trying to do something, maybe they're not connecting. One person does a nice thing and the other person doesn't really receive it. Or when, you know, and it's like, you can kind of, oh, it's like seeing two kids try to get along and then they just don't connect. And you can see what's standing between them. You're like, oh, I can I help. Can I help? Yeah. Um, it's tender. It makes you feel for both of them. You can kind of see, oh, I mean, in fact, the scene with uh, the ex-boyfriend that I loved was he dared to say to um, Allison, right? She's the main character of uh, in Kevin Can Fuck Himself. He dared to say to her, she said, uh, everyone just shut me out about her old friends. And he said, a lot of times when people say people are shutting them out, it's actually that person who's shutting everyone else out. And she's immediately defensive and walks out. But part of it is that she obviously hasn't had any real intimate relationships since she was in high school. So she doesn't know how to take insights from other people because people don't talk to her in a real way at all. And when you see this attempt by him to connect with her that fails because she's just, and you feel so sorry for her because she says she wants this. She says she wants to connect, but she can't do it. That scene I thought was great. But the thing is, they're probably kind of falling in love. You know, that's their trajectory on that show. It's pretty obvious. And all of the other trajectories, I mean, maybe she's becoming friends with the friend who is a guy's gal and is sells drugs on the side. That was a spoiler, but it's just in the second episode. Um, you know, but you want to see people connect. I mean, if there's more and more connection throughout the show, then okay. But there's not enough at the, there aren't enough seeds of it at the beginning of the show to keep you going. You kind of feel like, wow, this is so bleak. I don't know. I need to see her. I They could add a little triumph within the darkness even yeah. in the second episode. Like she could yeah. have a little victory. One of the things that you're, touching on I think is I think what they're setting up very heavy-handedly in the pilot is that she has this fantasy of what life is supposed to be like or what her goals are supposed to be and and she has very specific tangible to her things that she thinks are going to fix everything so she's very focused on buying this house in a different neighborhood and getting out and so focused on it that she's ignoring all of the reality and all the things that that she might have more control over or or not in her day-to-day -day life and in some ways i think that is how a lot of people think of marriage or uh, you know we, you know all relationships must be marching towards marriage once you lock someone down and get married everything is rosy i you know got married a couple of years ago at the age of 40 and i was so surprised how much cultural weight people put on that we've been together almost a decade but somehow getting married puts this kind of uh, fairy dust glow over a relationship. Allison, the character in this show, is staying in a marriage that is does not look appealing from the outside in. And almost everyone around her is saying to her, y you're not in a great place. Your, your husband isn't a great guy. What do you think her, her staying, even up to the point of the pilot, says about you know, our ideas of marriage and, and how it can really hold on to us. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that's interesting about how these, th these characters behave towards her. And I think one of the reasons that the, the plot can feel frustrating is that people do um, want to withhold, they, they want to um, support the marriage above everything else. It's the marriage comes before their friendships with her the marriage comes, but you know, their marriages come before their own happiness. So it feels like almost a betrayal for someone to leave a marriage for their happiness, which I'm sure 
divorced people are probably familiar with that sensation. Why would you make that choice? You know, I'm sure there are a lot of people who are like, I keep myself from making that choice all the time. How dare you? It's kind of like how people react to cheating or open marriages or infidelity where they're like, you know, I don't do that. So fuck you for doing it. There's this scene in the, where she's in the working at the, um, I guess she works at a corner store, a liquor store, I think. And the woman, the woman who works with her, is it her aunt who works with her? Yeah, some relative. And she says something about Kevin and the aunt says, oh, poor Kevin. And just totally gets Kevin's back, even though he's being a complete dig. And is like, you need to think about how Kevin feels. Oh, yeah. She says, are you giving up on your body? You need to keep your body nice. So, you know, to keep Kevin satisfied. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, and she's here, Allison is trying to talk about her feelings and how lonely she feels. And this woman is like, why don't you think of poor Kevin and, and think of serving Kevin? I do think that there's not a lot of uh, space <laughs> in our culture for women to talk about dissatisfaction. One of the things that sort of have pulled me through my marriage and made my marriage healthier is daring to talk about little things that piss me off and little things that feel like they matter to me. I mean, and also just sorting through the different things that bug you and deciding which ones actually matter and which ones don't matter at all. And, you know, sometimes when you can guide that process through, by understanding your values and what you really care about. And I mean, the thing is, there are times when <laughs> something bothers you and you don't even know why, right? Like it's very small but you're like furious about it. And it's hard to talk about. It's like the, the, the liver thing. My, I came home for the first time I left our baby, our first baby with my husband alone. And I was trying really hard not to be a control freak about the baby. And I come back in and he's holding the bit, tiny infant baby over a boiling pot of water while talking to my stepson uh, at the same time. And she's in one hand, she's like draped over his forearm. And he's stirring a pot with the other hand. And I walked in and I was like, what am I seeing? Like, why, why would I walk in and see this? And he was like, calm down immediately. And I was like, <laughs> it, it was like, um, this is a fight. This is a big, big fight. You know, this is just gonna, there's no, there are no boundaries to how big this fight could be. And I had to calm myself and say, we, we're gonna have to talk now about this because I can't hear calm down. Every time I'm worried about the kid, I can't hear it calm down. It's not going to work out that well for us. I have to say that was my big takeaway from your book. I really admire that quality of, of your relationship and, and your self-awareness where there are a lot of self-deprecating moments in your book where you say, I, I know that what I'm about to express is maybe selfish or it makes it's not my husband isn't going to like it, but I have to tell him. It really made me think about my own communication and my own relationship, not just in my marriage, but just in relationships of being able to express that sort of before they blow up, before you uh, break a glass and start to plot the murder. <laughs> it's, uh, it's you know, it, it can be very diffusing, even though the idea of expressing something um, like, I hate what you're doing, or I'm about to criticize you, or there's something that you're doing that is not your fault, but I am going to be enraged by it. So you're going to have to change who you are. Those those little moments can really, you know, affect your trajectory. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, especially when someone feels a, a stuck place to be is when someone approaches you with that, that, you know, this is really important to me. And the first thing you think is, 
well, that's just how I am. I don't know how I'm going to change that thing. This, you know, it almost panics you like, but, 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 but my husband in the beginning of our marriage used to say, your tone is so harsh. Why does it have to be so harsh? And I, I had to say, I mean, I think my tone has become naturally less harsh over the years, but I had to at some point say like, I just am very intense. And I don't know that my tone, I don't know if I can police my own tone that effectively. And I, and I mean, I'll, I'll try. There are times when you have this conversation where you say, I'm going to really try to do that. You know, you're like, you're trying to control yourself. You're like, I'm going to, I'm really going to try, but I want to warn you that it sounds like becoming a different person, you know, which is whatever you do actually kind of evolve into different people slowly, but it takes a long time and it takes a lot of patience to, um, put up with how slow you each change. Um, and sometimes the only, the, the only thing that you can do is actually tell the truth about how hard it is. You know, I mean, that's where something that could stay a fight will often end if you're both in a position to just acknowledge this thing is a bad thing for us. This is just one of those triggers that we're both gonna feed and we have to watch this. Like we have to be careful about this, this thing, this place. <laughs> When this thing does this, sends us to this place, we're fucked. And we have to recognize that. And it's, the, and, and sometimes it's just like, look, I don't think you're going to do this any better. If we, if we were to recreate the conditions that brought us to this shitty fight, I don't think either one of us can do it better than we just did it, you know? And we just like yelled at each other, you know, they're just those things. And I'm not saying, yeah, run around yelling. It's great. You know, live that way forever. But there are those situations where you have to just say, well, <laughs> too bad we are the way we are, because this is the kind of thing um, that, that can do that. Traveling with teenagers will send you over the edge. It's like you're, you have your own crazy moods, especially when you yourself are hormonal. There are parts of raising a family specifically that are just, you just, you can't believe that you're in the situations you're in. I mean, I put some of those in the book, obviously, but, and you know, I had fun with it. I love that's what I like reading about. I mean, I make that clear in the book. It's like, I want to read about the most ridiculous, humiliating failure of your marriage. And if you have five of those, give me five of those. And then tell me how you, you know, clawed your way out of that hole. Maybe I didn't write about the successful, <laughs> cheerful, <laughs> celebratory times quite enough. I do think that your decision to share a lot of personal details in the book made it very relatable, um, as Layla shared. And, you know, you were generous. You talked about how you met your husband, you know, you're, you're starting a family and even like your experience with cancer and, and health issues. And it's true of all kinds of storytelling, but in many, many ways, when we share the specifics of our experiences, that can be what um, allows people to relate the best. And so you also kind of talk about this a little bit and you talk about some of the ways that like all relationships are kind of the same, uh, even when there's lots of different kinds of people, um, you know, queer people, different races. Um, you have a line in the book, quote, the bottom line is you got struck by lightning. It doesn't matter how it happened. All that matters is that now you're dizzy and your hair is on fire. And I really liked that because it expressed two things that I feel very strongly about. One, I don't want to hear 
about, you know, members of my friend group are um, the details of their like text exchanges. It's not always of interest to me. And two, like I am fundamentally happy for them. <laughs> so, you know, I think there is this, this sense that like, this experience, even if the, the details and the color are all different, like is kind of fundamentally, there is a tension and it is, there is something relatable about that on a large scale. Um, and so I'm curious for you, not just marriages, but do all relationships kind of have these somewhat universal tensions? And I think probably many of our I'm going to ask on behalf of our unmarried uh, listeners as the, I'm going to be the resident unmarried person on the call. And I am part of a demographic where, you know, marriages are on decline and divorce rates are declining too. But when people are marrying, like it's at later ages, you talk about some of this data. So like what is going on there? Like, is there this kind of like fundamentally doomed quality to these tensions? And, and obviously you don't think it's all the way doomed, but I'm curious kind of what is your, what is your outlook on that? I do think there's kind of like a current common wisdom among younger people that marriage is a a trick and a trap and a crock of shit that you should probably try to avoid. I think that there's a lot of also really healthy skepticism and very healthy optimistic embrace of alternative arrangements, which I think is amazing. I get more and more letters actually from people who are non-binary in open relationships, uh, in like multi-person relationships that are sort of long-term partnerships on throuples. And I definitely feel like I'm mostly out of my depth as a boring cishet white woman with a lot of this stuff. If you don't pick apart the thing, the parts of your culture that were just handed to you, with all of the bad and the good and everything in between that that entails, then it's pretty hard to make a proactive, interesting, informed choice about how you want to live. So my kids, I mean, at some point I sat them down because there's a chapter about how I have a crush on someone, an extended obsessive crush. And I've just been worrying about how my kids would react to that. I sat them down and I was like, you know, this book about my marriage, if it happened to be popular, which is extremely unlikely, but if it did, if it did happen to be popular, people at school could say things to you about your slut mom, you know, who became obsessed with a married man, like why, you know, like what the fuck is wrong with her? A question that I might ask myself to this day, you know, I, I just explained what the chapter was about. And I was like, you know, you can read it, but I just need for you to understand what's there so you know what you're hearing. And they were both like, I mean, this, I think I talked for like a half an hour, right? I mean, I was just like, you know, and I mean, say the part of this, no, 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 no. And I get to the end of it. And my older daughter says, honestly, marriage is the part of it that seems ludicrous to me. I mean, all, (laughs) 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 you know, kids are pretty sophisticated. She's 15. And my younger daughter was like, yeah, I mean, whatever. What? And I was like, aren't you going to, you know, how are you going to feel when someone says to you, but your mom wanted to cheat on your dad? And, <laughs> and they were just like, you know, who, who cares what someone would say? About, I mean, they just like, they know themselves and they're not. Um, raising kids is just like a, an amazing thing because there's this point where they just outgrow you. They're like wiser and and more sophisticated and more 
and more intelligent about the world outside than you are at some point. And you just have to kind of listen to them. It's not like every, that's true for every single dimension of their judgment and personality, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's pretty humbling. I think it's that in that chapter, you say something to your husband, like, I feel like a man. And he says to you, you sound more like a teenage boy. I also think that that chapter was part of what I was referencing when I said I really admire how open and 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 transparent you are with your husband because it's not you update him every step of the way on that crush and he also I think that might be the uh, sexiest portrayal of him because he he seems utterly unfazed by it all it just has a lot of confidence throughout whereas um you know his swagger is attacked in other chapters but in that chapter he comes off as very uh confident in his marriage and and your fidelity Well, what's interesting is that he is, it is one of the more attractive things about him that he's completely comfortable with it. I mean, it's almost like, I think that's why I didn't let go of the crush because the the second I started talking about it, he was like, oh, that's really interesting. Like, I'm I'm curious (laughs) why you've never fantasized about random people. Like, tell me more about this. He was just, he was just curious and interested. And so it opened up this big conversation about, um, of our various, very different expectations of each other's, what was going on in each other's minds. And I think that I had this need to connect at a deeper level. And I found a way to do it basically through this strange, confusing situation. And it didn't have to involve other people at all. Except in the abstract. In the, except in the totally <laughs> abstract. And, you know, in the, in the plotting of my evil mind for about 3.5 seconds until it ended in a sitcom. But in response to your younger daughter's questioning of marriage as a construct and bringing it back to uh, Kevin can fuck himself, I think one of the interesting things about Kevin and Allison is they're living in a more old timey uh, world than I think a lot of your book takes place in L.A. and they're in like Worcester in this very insular place where clearly marriage is an expectation and a construct that is very much alive. I just want to acknowledge that historically and clearly still for Allison, marriage is also a financial contract for a lot of people. And and financial security is a big piece of what might keep someone in an unhappy marriage. That's a great point. In the second episode, there's a scene where uh, Allison says, oh, what am I supposed to do? Take my $128 and go rent a hotel room. And uh, that's that. Yeah, sure. I'll get divorced today. That'll be great. And then when you add kids into the picture, it just become possible to imagine situations where it's just like you're not even going to contemplate an alternative life, an alternative path forward, because it's just become so heavy to think about disappointing your kids and trying to suddenly make a living where you maybe you were a housewife or, or you weren't making enough to, I mean, who can make enough to afford a house right now anyway? Okay. So this is interesting. When I was first married, I read this book by Elizabeth Warren and she wasn't a politician yet, but she wrote this book with her daughter called The Two Income Trap. And it's about how if you choose to get married, you cannot adopt a lifestyle based on two incomes. If you want to have financial freedom, and and I mean, it sounds, it's a little bit one of those pie in the sky, like don't buy the latte, don't buy the avocado toast, put that money in a jar kind of you know, and soon you'll learn, you'll be able to buy a half a million dollar apartment. No problem. I was very into this idea. Like you do not upgrade your life based on two incomes because one person could lose their job. And if you have kids, that person's going to be watching the kids. The kids are going to come out of daycare. All these, th- these ripple effect things happen. The book is also about how 
parents often buy in good neighborhoods or good neighborhoods or whatever that means now. And, you know, where the schools are good, whatever that means now. And, uh, you know, they prioritize these certain neighborhoods with, you know, the high rated schools that are incredibly expensive. They cannot afford to live there at all, but they rationalize it by I'm giving my kids this future, blah, blah, blah. And then again, someone loses their job and they can't afford where they are. They can't afford to, you know, so they're, when I started to think about that today when I saw that scene, because I thought, my God, to be in a financial trap with someone is just, uh, it's unthinkably awful. I do think that, um, do you hear that? Lightly, yeah. I just want to mention it because there's an <laughs> animal living in the ceiling of my house. <gasps> really? That's what that was? Yeah, it's awesome. Speaking of things that <laughs> can make you stressed out in your conversations with your spouse, um, I just all day long have been texting Bill saying, we, I don't, you know, this is, so we, we, we closed off this hole where some animals were obviously coming in, but now this one animal, it sounds like a, a, a raccoon or a monkey. Like it sounds really <laughs> heavy when it sits down. You can, it makes a thump. Oh, no, That's wow. terrible. And it's like, you can hear the claws. It's like scampering anyway. So <laughs> all day long, I've said, go open that hole to let that goddamn animal out. I'm sure there's a metaphor here somewhere for the the animal crouching in your home as you negotiate your marriage. But I, I think you were saying something important and we want to get, I, I we made a promise at the beginning of this that we would talk about the juicy bits and Heather, we, we got to get to this backlash. But w- one thing that I do want to say about the like economic argument Like, I think it's really valuable and important to talk about both. Like, obviously, marriage began as an economic argument. And as the stakes have changed for women, like the stakes have changed for women in marriage. Um, And that's really interesting and important to talk about. And I think there's something I appreciate about your presenting something of a control experiment. Like, in some ways, your book and story is a testament to the ways in which, like, even under the quote-unquote best most privileged of circumstances like you have these two white cis straight like economically let's just say comfortable people who are not ostensibly practicing abuse neglect like like these are the the check boxes right it's still really fucking hard like it's still really challenging there's still these tensions that we've like mined and talked about so i think that's like valid and important and and super interesting I didn't talk about money enough in my book, actually, because money is like, it's such a central thing. And one, and one of the things that Bill and I talked about before we even got married was like, it was sort of like, should we draw up a prenup or should we just talk about what would happen if we got divorced, how we would handle it? And we had a conversation about how we agreed, basically promised that we would never use money to punish each other mm. so that we would never like try to take money from each other to be punitive or try to, you know, whatever. It's kind of abstract, sounds kind of abstract now, but yeah, we had some years where I was making nothing as a freelance writer, you know, he was a professor. We had lean years, but you know, there's security there obviously too. And we're white and well, definitely money can be the topic of a future essay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's tough. I, I do think that it it is hard no matter what though. Heather, you obviously um, have a book coming out. And as part of promotion for that book, you publish an excerpt in the New York Times in December 2021 entitled Marriage Requires Amnesia. And there was a 
very provocative header underneath that that said, do I hate my husband? Oh, for sure. Yes, definitely. And in this day and age, I'm not quite sure that anyone read anything else besides that. Um, but regardless, um, this, I think suffice it to say, gave uh, people a lot of fodder. It seemed like the feedback kind of fell into two buckets roughly. And one was like, does your husband know you're doing this? Like, how dare you? And the other one was like, you're a terrible wife, um, which are related. And I'm just curious, like, how are you feeling? How are you, are you doing okay? Like, how are you handling this backlash? Was there anything that made you change your mind about anything <laughs> or just like how's how's Heather's life post being the Twitter main character? You know, when the New York Times editor chose that chapter, I knew it was going to be trouble. And I sort of leaned into it because um, she sent me a bunch of headlines and subtitles, which was very nice of her. Sometimes they just put up whatever they want. I loved the title and the subtitle. I mean, I think it was popular in part. And that sounds like a manipulation, but. I wasn't trying to piss people off. I just thought marriage requires amnesia was a great title. And I, and the, the subtitle, do I hate my husband? Oh yeah, sure. Definitely. For sure. Definitely. When I wrote the whole thing, I was laughing. My husband was sneezing. He had a cold and I was just laughing my ass off and writing. It, and I was like, you, I can't wait to show you this. And then I showed it to him. Cause like in the book, I have all these parentheticals where I'm like, he just sneezed again. He just cleared his throat again. I mean, it gets more and more, you know, I'm trying to let you, the reader, be tortured by my husband. Um, and he read it and laughed. And as I was writing it, it was like, people are going to think I hate my husband. Do I hate my husband? And then it was just like, obviously, the joke is that I say, yeah, for sure. I have been saying to Bill for like two years, look, when this book comes out, um, people are so intense about marriage. If it gets any press coverage at all, you know, we're in trouble. And And you're you know, you have to be prepared to be seen as this, I don't know, caricature of a person, because that's how these things get, get digested these days. You know, people read two lines and then they're like, you're that bitch who hates your, hates your husband. I mean, you know, I'm in this kind of active state of like, you know, can I excerpt anything else from the book out of context? Because whatever, whatever comes next, I, I'm not only that bitch who hates her husband, but I'm, you know, insert the failure of whatever chapter, you know, like all my chapters are about some failure of mine. So just take your pick. I'm that bitch who hates your husband is also a fucking whore. The way things are processed these days, it's almost like um, the, the concept of cancel culture just pisses me off. The fact that it's tied now to social justice makes me crazy. Obviously it's so fucking stupid because the issue is that there aren't any artifacts anymore. There's no art. It's just, we're looking to see who's good and who's bad. It's almost more corrosive than the idea of just canceling someone who's shitty, you know, like yeah. it's, it's because it's like, Hey, Hey, we're not talking about canceling anyone here. I just want to say that she seems awful, you know, like everything boils down to this. And if you go to like, and now I feel like even articles are warped. It's like it's feeding back into the system. There's this backlog, the sewage coming into the pipes where like articles themselves are just, this person said the person was good. This person said they're bad. This good, bad, good, bad, good, bad. So it's like a Twitter thread, the whole article. And then you read the Twitter thread underneath it. They're like, no, the article said he, 
it's clear that he's bad based on the article. No, he's no. They the article is about why you know why they put his face on the cover. I'm I'm talking about Josh Josh Whedon. I mean, <laughs> I don't give a shit how Josh Whedon is. I don't care. He's a, yeah. Is he a vampire? Yeah. You know, sounds pretty fucking. Does he sound fucked up? Yes. Yeah. You know? But I don't give it. I don't personally. I have no verdict. All I know is I read an article and I'm not insulting. This is just how these things are written now. The problem I have with it is where are the ideas? Where's the big picture notion of what a person should be? Like, if we're going to say, where's the philosophy? Where are we? You know, is it, is there going to be some compassion and then some condemnation and then a philosophy that we come to at the end or like a thought or a little bit of reflection on what we're fucking dealing with as a, as a culture at this moment? Are we just going to all run around going, no, I decided she was bad. No, he's, he's better than I thought, actually. You know, it's just boring. It's just not, it's not, I don't want to say nuanced. It's just not interesting. You know, there aren't ideas in the mix anymore. Let's at least, you know, my piece that I wrote and not to just be like a bitch about it because (laughs) I wrote it, but it's about the right to feel anger within it's about the fact of anger within a marriage, you know, that's all. And the, and the fact that it became like this stupid bitch needs to get divorced immediately. is just, a, it's an illustration of everything has to be resolved. It's all black and white, right? Yeah. How do we resolve this? Where do I stand? You know, and it, that's not, it makes life so boring. Yeah. And it's also obviously kind of dangerous too, right? I mean, when we're all running around you know, with our long knives out, it's just it, for each other. And obviously the country is in a place where um, politics are like this too. And it sucks. I'm not saying we should all forgive each other and have a picnic, but um, yeah, it would be nice if it was more interesting, more ideas were in the mix. You know, it was about how can we support each other's humanity? I like that critique of cancel culture better than I bristled when you first said it because I wasn't sure which way the conversation is going to go because I do think that within comedy and definitely on this podcast we've had some conversations about Dave Chappelle and Netflix and censorship there is a trend in critiquing cancel culture to use that sentiment to censor critique and I I like what you're saying is hit me with ideas not just the term canceled yeah, I don't mind reading a whole article about Joss Whedon, even though he's possibly not worthy at this point of <laughs> that level of, you know. Well, since we're asking to hear about ideas, Heather, are you familiar with Jimmy Kimmel's segment, Celebrities Read Mean Tweets? Oh, no, I haven't seen that. Would you like to read three mean tweets about yourself today? Oh, sure. I'm going to drop these into the Zoom chat. Oh, yeah, I remember this one. I know exactly who wrote this one. <laughs> Should I make it spiteful? I think the more sincere, the better. It's up to you. You, We'll, we'll take your creative direction here. <laughs> you do understand you are filing your divorce papers in front of millions of people, right? Thank you. That was very weirdly soothing. Um, here's another one. Literally the entire thing reads like how misogyny trains women to react to men. The call is coming from inside the house. Jesus. I mean, it's so funny. One of my daughters, can I just interrupt with one? Dumb yeah, yeah thing? please, please. One of my daughters did, did a Google search on Haver Leske. I think she was looking for, I don't know what she was looking for. Not me, but she found <laughs> someone saying, uh, someone tweeting like, um, 
the whole point of marriage is that you have to communicate. And she started laughing and told us about it. And she was like, I, I wanted to like reply to the tweet and say, you don't even understand how much my parents communicate. It's a nightmare, actually. It's so there's so much communication going on here. It's a fucking alternative realm of hellish communication. Lori, do you have more tweets? Yes, this is the last one. And um dropping this in very relevant to what we've been discussing. Okay. Ma'am. <laughs> I love that beginning. Ma'am, have you considered getting a divorce if you're so damned miserable instead of shitting on your husband for an entire article? It's 2022. We're well past the need for spouse-hating humor. Oh my God, so untrue though. (laughs) That was really good. (laughs) We don't need spouse-hating humor. I mean, the thing is, marriage is really funny, you know? I'm not trying to say abusive relationships are funny, but I'm not in an abusive relationship, you know? I mean- trying to put up with another human being who lives in your house with you is just a constant comedy. It's a clown show. Actually, I feel like to bring it back to Kevin can fuck himself. And as we wrap up, like, I I actually think that's a little bit of what the show is missing is just like things can get really dark, but there's also weird humor that they maybe missed. I don't know what it says about me, but some of the sitcom lines, I'm like, these are really well written and funny for a sitcom. (laughs) Like I'd, I would just watch that sitcom. Yeah. It's I, kind of like a purposefully corny sitcom too. Yeah. Like it, it has like a certain kind of, you know, like, Oh, tell me about it. The cringe watchers know that that is my, uh, humor aesthetic. <laughs> oh, <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, women of color have experienced the greatest job losses with those from black and Latinx communities hit hardest. Hot Bread Kitchen, a nonprofit based in New York City, has worked to create economic mobility for individuals disproportionately impacted by gender, racial, social, and or economic inequality for over a decade. Hot Bread Kitchen continues to invest in the talent and long-term potential of historically excluded essential workers and food entrepreneurs through their workforce development and small business programming. Here's what one of the small business owners, Fauzia of Fauzia's Heavenly Delights, has to say. The sense of helplessness we felt during the first couple months of the pandemic has transformed into optimism about the growth of our business with Hot Bread Kitchen's continued support. Join Hot Bread Kitchen in investing in recovery for women and small businesses. You can learn more and support their work at hotbreadkitchen.org and follow them on social media at Hot Bread Kitchen. I know we're almost at time. Can we plow through the rapid fire? First question is, is there another show that you're binging right now? Oh, I'm watching Station Eleven. It's awesome. And JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, an anime show. It's very bizarre uh, and and bloody. What is something in the world that you are finding very cringy at the moment? A lot of profiles right now, I think, are cringy, like I was saying. I don't know. I just read this profile of... Hanya Yanagahara, actually, that was amazing. I love her. I, you know, so I don't want to say that because some profiles are amazing. I'm going to say interviews over profiles. That's my 2022 media take, hot take. Like the Brian Cox interview, it's like so good. 
Yeah. I, I think that I, my list is kind of long and I don't even want to talk about it. Okay. You know, I just like, <laughs> yeah, I don't, it's like, don't talk about that. Don't talk about that. Don't talk about that. I used to be a TV critic. I, I was a book critic for a while. Like I'm a real critic. I have a lot of things to criticize. Lots of things make me, ugh, fuck this. I don't know. I stay off Twitter, so it's not bugging me that much right now. Good for you. It's all Wordle boxes these days anyway. Yeah, true. Is there an aspect of sex or sexuality that you would like to see better portrayed in film, TV, or literature? It would be interesting to, I mean, in support of that chapter of my book, I think it would be interesting to portray people who are married who have wandering eyes, but don't actually cheat on each other at all, or talk constantly about how they'd like to cheat on each other, but they don't actually do it. I would be into watching that. Like, if you could just see a couple, like couples are either falling apart or they're falling in love. It would be kind of nice to see a couple that like put, or they just push it a little too far with each other at all times, but nothing ever really breaks apart because they're actually communicating and getting along. And I don't know, alternative forms of couples. I have a friend who's in a thruple and I'd like to know more. I'd like to see that. I mean, why isn't that on TV? It'd be nice. Maybe it is. And I don't know about it. I would like to find that as well. Um, what is a favorite scene depicting sex or sexuality that you've encountered? And this can be in any genre, TV, film, or literature, any media as well. I hate to say this, it's so boring and awful, but the scene where, um, oh God, it's so embarrassing. Jon Snow and Mother of Dragons finally get it on. And we see like a clear shot of Jon Snow's ass. And it's like, oh yeah, it's kind of, it was handled kind of for, for the ladies to get the biggest charge out of the scene, right? Like, it was sort of like, or whatever, the straight, the, the straight ladies and the gay men and anyone attracted to men, it was like made for them instead of being made for all, like showcasing her body, which I thought was hot. Also, he's kind of vulnerable in that scene for, in that relationship, he's very much the vulnerable sweet bottom and she's the top which is also kind of hot because it mixes things up a little bit that relationship like waiting for that i didn't actually understand that they were going to fall in love for all of game of thrones and my husband was sort of like yeah duh it's so obvious so when it happened i was like oh my god yay like <laughs> i was like oh they're both so hot she rides a dragon now they're gonna fuck i can't believe it i was extremely into that shit and then of course she you know no spoilers that i just spoiled awesome. the game of thrones for half the people <laughs> the entire series that is a power way to go out i love it honestly that they're not missing anything <laughs> except for that anything past that <laughs> that's true that's true that was a highlight because what happens immediately after that pisses everybody off <laughs> Thank you so much. This has been really wonderful. Uh, it was great to to meet you, to hear the creature in your in your walls and uh, <laughs> your real life voice after reading it on the page. Yes, all your voices. Um, thank you so so much. Thank you to our guest Heather Haverleski. Her book Foreverland on the Divine Tedium of Marriage is out now. Our editor is Karen Y Chan. Judith Walker created our logos and cover art. D.L. Dallas Engram created our theme song. Our ad music is by Siddhartha Courses. You can find D.L. on SoundCloud and Siddhartha on Bandcamp.
You can support the show by visiting patreon.com slash cringe watchers. We love our supporters and we just want to thank you all so much. We're nearing 3000 downloads, which is huge for a tiny independent podcast like ours. And we really appreciate all your support. Subscribe to us on Patreon today to get cool perks like a shout out on the show. You can also always show your love by rating and reviewing the show and follow us at cringe watchers on Instagram and Twitter. That's all for today. Thank you for cringe watching with us. 